Right, Amanda, what are we doing today? We're doing story time, and I've lost count of how many episodes oh, we're up to. I'll give you 9%. <laughs> I, th- yeah, I think it's the ninth one, but I'm prepared to be told otherwise. So I'm Andy N. She is... Amanda Nicholson. What is story time? It's, it's what it says on the tin. It's a time where we tell stories or poems. Yeah, and what do we also do, Amanda, with it? We have guests on. Yeah, and we, we've got a guest at the bottom waving at the moment here. <laughs> yeah. Lovely lady. And we met this lady, didn't we, Amanda, at Word Central, Manchester. Uh, quickly, was it beginning of the year? Or my ship rains? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I think but, so. Maybe January? Give it January. Monday, does that sound, sound about right to you? Sounds it? about right, yeah. Yeah, and quickly is a dear friend of both mine, Amanda's, and she's a fantastic story writer. So quickly, tell everybody a little bit about yourself very briefly and go for your first piece. Cool. Um, well, I write a lot of short stories and I'm reading a few today. Um, I'm from Essex originally, but I've been living in a few different places. I'm half Irish. My accent will probably go Irish. I should probably preempt that. Uh, and um, I was living in Dublin last year. And yeah, I'll start reading. Um, this is my first short story. It's called Calling My Father by His First Name. I grew my father in a bowl in my bedroom like a sea monkey. He didn't do much for the first while, just floated around in there. I'd put little drops of food in the water and clean it out when I could. He seemed okay. It was hard to tell. When he grew legs, I thought that that was a positive development. And to be fair, sometimes it was, but mostly he just kicked out against the glass at me. I don't think he really knew what to do with himself either most of the time. Didn't know what to make of me either, looking in at him, waiting for something from him. I started feeding him raisins then, and he seemed to like that a lot. He got bigger by the day and did little dances now when he knew I'd be feeding him, though he still battered himself against the glass more than I would have liked. I used to flick him then, trying to put him off it to teach him that he'd hurt himself if he kept at it. So I'd flick him each time, but then he'd go hide in his little castle I'd put in there for him, and he'd look out at me all hurt. I felt terrible then, like some horrible betraying God, but I really meant it for his own good. He got bigger still, though, and I had to move him into the tank. I had to work all day now, and I couldn't be there all the time to feed him whenever he wanted, so I tried leaving food in there for him. I thought it'd be pretty obvious what was going on, you know. He'd work it out and he could eat when he got hungry and stop when he got full, that kind of thing. But I don't think he was ever really able to tell those things because he'd mostly just look at the food confused without me there to feed it to him and he'd be starving. He must have been, but he never thought of just feeding himself. Ended up with piles of mouldy little raisins just conglomerating at the bottom of the tank. There was a week then when I got very sick. I couldn't even leave my bed to feed myself, let alone to pass him little raisins one by one. The idiot almost died, and when I was able to sit up finally and look over at the side of the tank, he was swimming about like usual, but his body was all wasted. His legs had almost rotted away with the hunger. He didn't look like he'd noticed, though, weirdly enough. It was like he thought everything was fine, but there he was half rotted. He wasn't well. I had to heave myself out of bed then, landed on the floor, had to sit for a bit to catch my breath, then I dragged myself inch by inch over to the tank. I fed him any spare raisins I had sitting around near the tank, and the next day I did the same, but by the third day I had none left to give him. Any food I had for him was left in the kitchen, and I knew I'd never make it that far and back. So I pushed up the sleeves of my pyjamas, and I reached my arm into the cold water. I tore pieces off the rotted mass of raisins still sitting there and fed them to him one by one, catching my breath between every movement. 
God, I was terrified that the mold would make him sick, but it seemed better than the alternative. Maybe it was the mold, or maybe I fed him too much or too little, but he was sick then anyway. I wouldn't eat for a few days, which was a secret relief to me, as it meant I could stay in bed a bit longer and actually rest. By the time I was a bit more well, able to have coherent thoughts, I knew he had to go. It wasn't right for me to keep him. I debated flushing him down the toilet, but I wasn't sure about his vertigo, so I let him go in a little pond in the end. He seems happier now. I still go to see him and he swims about more. He's gotten bigger, healthier looking. Sometimes I still go and throw him a few raisins. And then I get to go home without him. I go home alone and I don't get out of bed for anyone. Aww. And that's the story. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> I'm going to let you girls gang up with me today. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> You never saw, honestly, if anyone knows your style quickly, even by your standards, that's unusual, that one. <laughs> really? What inspired that? <laughs> I have no idea. I was sitting at a coffee shop and I just started writing and that was what came into my head, little sea monkey man in a tank. What, was it, obviously, a piece and that was wrote in one draft or do you have to go back and rework that a bit? Because it felt very stream of consciousness almost. Yeah, it was written in one sitting and then I just typed it up. But uh, it's probably inspired by something very subconscious that I'm not going to look into. It's but I, think it, I think that's about what's good about your work quickly, with your stories. I mean, people wonder about it. It's like it's, you do things in a very unusual way sometimes I'm not expecting. And it's the first time I've, it's hard to get you on today because I can see similarities a lot in both yours and Amanda's work sometimes. I remember... First time he came to our night speak easy, the host that day he turned around and said to me afterwards, he thought your work was that sort of influence like Amanda does, where you just don't know what you where you're going sometimes and stuff. It's really unusual. So <laughs> right, well, I'm gonna be better carry on now. So I want the don't another lady now to carry on. So Amanda, you have to share with okay. your first piece. Yeah. Right. This is called The Year 2200. They used to share pictures of their lunch on Facebook use hashtags to get attention and diagnose themselves on Google. They had phones that were like computers, which I suppose are like the ones we have now embedded in our brains. Of course, that was back when they ate lunch or anything else. Before that, one daily injection was enough to provide all the nutrition we need. Before we had trained robot doctors and back when people weren't on TV all the time, now we have millions of channels following everyone Life is just one big reality TV show, but one thing hasn't changed. Everyone is still too busy obsessing about themselves to notice what anyone else is doing. Right, okay, Amanda. Where, I, know, I know where you wrote that. What was the inspiration behind to go that direction? I know it was one of the prompts that we did in the workshop and it was also the prompt that they give us for the Stockport group for last month. And I just, I think I tried a few different openings and that's why I ended up going because I like telling social media about. <laughs> yeah. I think you can tell that one straight away with that, so good choice. <laughs> right, okay. Now, um, before we carry on, I better, we better ask it quickly. I think we better ask, we get Amanda here, hadn't we? Say, what is my big fat zombie life? Right, a video watchers. It's a, it's a very short series that is coming at the end of July where there's going to be an episode the week on my Instagram and YouTube account. And it's just me dressed up as a zombie, pretending to be a zombie influencer. 
And just taking the mickey out of influencers. Watch out for the reading and better feed, guys. You'll see it on there, on the video side, certainly. So, And obviously Instagram as well. So, okay, better move on now. I'll read up my first piece. Now, I told quickly, and Amanda knows about this already, uh, I finally, and it's took, this has took six years, this has as well, which is typical of me. Uh, I'm hard at work now on my next full-length culture book, which is going to be called From the Diabetic Ward. And that's going to be a collection of poetry about my struggles with diabetes when I first got diagnosed with it back in 2011. And this will cover probably the first five, six years of it. So, so this one was, to get the story right in it, as I got diabetes in 2011, I got laid off working at the co-op Manchester straight after, but just look at the draw. And this was when I went to work at a PPI call centre a couple months later, when I wasn't very well. So this is what happened. It's called call centre. Walking into unfenced territories, stashed in a mirror of emotions. Returning to work lasted three days, when I was in any kind of state, post-redundancy barely weeks into recovery, shaking all the way in my first day, upon being asked stand two lines like unposted soldiers, as some of us were led into a bus to an estate in Haywood that the agencies certainly hadn't told. The second day, we were ushered into a room on the 21st floor, stuffed with biscuits on the opposite table that had a huge don't-touch sign on, almost like they'd been saved for somebody else altogether, and true training tutors, we spent an hour explaining the systems, only for it to crash when we went into it. And straight out after again after lunch, leaving us sat there openly asking, was this a wind-up? The third day is etched into memory, when I sat next to an older lady, who I could barely understand, leaving my nerves into a relic of helplessness, barely able to keep up with the speed she operated in their systems, analysing the evidence without saying a word, as the caller on the phone got louder. Louder, 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 louder. The third day is etched into memory. A conversation with my body, crisscrossed in my nerves, shaking all the way into the staff restaurant, barely an hour and a half later. It's not too bad, one of the managers laughed. I've worked him worse. Only to tell me shortly after when I expressed my concerns. It was that job or the door out. I chose my health. Sorry about that, Matt. <laughs> <Don't remember. laughs> wow. to, as I said. It's very powerful. Yeah, cheers quickly. It wasn't really as much of a comedy one that, that but It wasn't wasn't the best place I'd worked at. <laughs> I think, I think I we've all imagine, yeah, PPI yeah. selling, yeah. I think we've all had jobs like that before. And I know Manda's definitely had one where you told me, Manda, you, you lasted a couple of days at one job, didn't you? So yeah. And I'm, I presume you've done the same quickly as well. <laughs> yeah. I worked for an agency once. I did one thing. I was like, that's enough. That's plenty. <laughs> well, that was agency. And strangely enough, I never got another placement off that agency. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why either. So, right. Okay. I better move on anyway. So I don't, I don't want to get shot or carry on with that one in case somebody works out which call centre it was I walked out <laughs> on after two and a half days. So quickly. Take us back to solar. I would say some kind of normality, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be lucky. Uh, right. This is the one I finished about 10 minutes ago, so I hope it's it's not too bad. Um, and it's a little bit longer, but it's called uh, The Dancing Bears of O'Connell Street. From time to time, a man would walk down O'Connell Street with a troop of dancing bears. 
Now this was not in itself unusual. Many a traveller passed through my small town, and it was common enough practice for them to stop and rest a while, or to draw a few coppers from an audience long held captive by boredom and curiosity. And they could not have bestowed their crafts upon a more grateful populace, as humble people, desperate for news of any one or anything outside our own walls, we gawked and thrilled at the sight of contraptions or creatures hitherto unknown. We were addicts of novelty. And the travelling men knew it. You could see it on them when we crowded around them, hands out offering whatever pennies we had to live off for a sight of whatever they could bring us, and they loved us too. Our adoration fed them more than our donations. Some would be beaming out at the energy, the intensity, the love of the crowd, while others would maintain a distance and you'd feel the smugness of them. You knew they were looking at us like we were naive little mud people fascinated by what should rightly bore us. Dancing bears too were not uncommon. An older form of entertainment, typically favoured by the kids who pulled the legs off insects, and by adults who were not ashamed to beat their own dogs in the street. Soon enough, though, the sight of the bears, the sheer size and the power of them, would crack us all, and we'd come running to watch them whipped and bellowing with that flame lit inside us of the horror and delight that made the little men with the cages so much money. But this man was not like the others. He was tall and thin with a long black hat, and when he first walked through our gates, the children screamed that a man had come who could walk with the bears. And indeed, the monsters were not caged or beaten or bloodied. They were not chained or starved. The great beasts in full bloom of health simply walked behind this figure in a neat and quiet line. Their strange procession was followed through town by a horde of stunned children, pushing each other closer and closer into the paths of the bears and screaming or laughing when they went unnoticed by the very beasts their parents spoke of in hushed and frightened tones. The adults, too, leaving their work and calling to each other, joined the crowd, hypnotised by the spectacle, and together this great mass reached and filled the town square where the tall man in the hat had come to a stop. He turned and looked out at the crowd with smiling eyes, while his bears took their places behind him. The man took off his hat and placed it upon the ground. Then he turned once more towards his bears. He nodded, and they began to dance. In shuffling, awkward fashion, the great creatures reared onto hind legs and tottered around and between each other in choreographed patterns. The man played no music and no sound escaped the or echoed across the square save the soft and rhythmic scraping of huge claws upon the stone ground beneath us. Now I cannot tell you why, but something in the sight of those bears made me feel sick. I could stand and holler out with the others when the beasts before us were battered and fighting. The man with a stick against a bear with the teeth, I was rooting for the man alongside the others, but these were not animals. Their movements were clumsy and pathetic. I felt ashamed of them. And they could not look at us, not once in their horrible dance did a single one look up from the ground into the eyes of the crowd. They could not meet our silent, watching faces. The sight of it all sickened me, and as the dance went on, I could notice that there were tears in my mouth. My face was wet with them, and my shoulders were jerking all this time with silent sobs. I missed the shouting, angry figures of the old ringmasters, and looked with hatred upon the back of this new traveller. And when the man nodded once more and the dance abruptly ceased, it was he who finally looked back at us, smiling out from behind his own bright blue eyes. The crowd began to move then, pouring forth to throw coppers in his hat or shake his hand or vie to be the one he chose to lodge with, the one on whom he turned his gaze. Some grinned and slapped his back too, greasy-haired young men and doting mothers, not the usual fans of dancing bears. They congratulated him on his talents, how he used his mind, his wits to subdue the beasts. 
but I noticed others of the congregation leaving with red rubbed eyes, shooting the man uneasy glances or looking to the bears, now sat motionless unnoticed by their master. The ringmaster met us all with the same smiling face. I left anyway to go back to work. I chatted with my fellow workers and made cups of tea and gossiped, but something from that vision, that horrible dance remained with me, suspended just behind my vision, hovering round the edges of my mind at all times. I noticed others too among us whose faces darkened when conversation turned to the man who walked with bears and praise was laid at the feet of this new humane approach. And then when I woke that night to the taste of tears inside my mouth once more, I knew that I had dreamed about the bears. I lay there in the darkness of my room and felt the sickness of the scene. Its empty horror sat upon my body weighted down. It was long before sunrise and looking from my window to the moonlit streets, I felt my body begin to move. It crept from my bed then and from my room and out of my door and I knew where it was going. I knew it in myself, though I could not work the parts of me that knew how to feel afraid. I remember still, as in a vivid dream, the knowing of my own bare feet upon that earthen path, the warmth of it, the soft yielding of the clay. The night was still and humid, the moon a stain upon deep blue cloth. It was only when I reached the door of the stable that my body had been drawn to that I came all at once back into myself. I could smell the hay then and the dirt and the warm furry bodies breathing softly behind the wood. Still somehow compelled, I lifted the latch and opened the door. Inside the stable, the bears lay sleeping, their mountainous bodies gently rising and falling in the darkness. Even in sleep, I noticed that they somehow felt seemed clenched, their mouths pulled into tight lines, nullified. I knelt beside the great body of a beast and reached my hand out towards it when a sound behind me made me turn. The ringmaster was standing by the door. He wore no hat, and for the first time I realised how short he really was. A thin little man with cropped hair, but something in the way he smiled down upon me made me feel as though he towered. I noticed then, all at once, that he did not smile with his mouth. It remained a harsh line, but it was his eyes, his eyes that made you feel like he was smiling at you, and suddenly I got the intense impression that he was looking out at me from somewhere far behind them, that the bright blue eyes he wore did not quite touch them. Touch him. I thought you might try and find me, he said, in a tone I could not quite place. Not angry or surprised, as I'd expected, but as if I'd let him down in some way as if I was exposing something in myself by being there. Horribly aware of my body before his gaze, I retracted the arms, still hanging pathetically, half-reached out. I was worried about the bears. Were you? He said it flatly. No intonation, nothing given away, and yet the statement of it made me feel he didn't believe me. No, really, I, I trailed off, forgetting my own words. He stood there unchanged still eyes smiling and I felt my body swell in the darkness big and ugly and awkward filling the silence of the room they looked sad it sounded so limp he said nothing and I knew I'd given the wrong answer I had outed myself as foolish and a child a naive villager from a nowhere town they're beautiful though I offered the bears the dance it was haunting his mouth flickered at this and I thought maybe I was close. Maybe if I could speak the right combination of words or act the right way somehow, maybe he would let me go. He would look at me and know I had potential. He would see in me something that could touch the man behind his eyes. They must really love you to dance like that. I could feel it. I could feel that I was close to touching him. Something in me was alive at the closest. It was like each hair in my body was screaming, standing on end. I could get him. I'm sorry for sneaking in here. I just had to tell you. 
His eyes narrowed. I felt his disappointment in my chest. My heart growing, beating hard. I poured out more words, blur blurring together louder and louder. I would get him. I could find the right one to touch him. I'm sorry. You were right. It was beautiful. It was really beautiful. Please let me make it up to you. He shifted his stance and I fell silent. I waited for him to speak. I knew that I was close now. I knew it. If I could just make him talk, if I could offer him something. And as I desperately thought of what I could say or do to reach him, he nodded just once, gently in the darkness. And he smiled as I began to dance. Excellent. I'm going to let Amanda ask if Amanda's got any questions first on this one. Maybe first. It was memorable. <laughs> yeah. It made me think of him quickly. I've got to say this. Um, do you remember when we went to Blackpool last year, Amanda, for our honeymoon? And oh, we saw... yeah, with the poor horses. Yeah. It made me think of the other... I don't know if you've been to Blackpool recently, quickly, where they've on the front, they've got a lot of horses they drag up and down on, like horse carriages. It's very old-fashioned. It's very cruel as well, the way the poor animals are treated. And it made me think of that juncture straight away. But I, I don't like asking direct questions on pieces like that, but... <laughs> What's that based on true life event? It's actually based on a dream I had. <laughs> uh, your, your dreams are as disturbing as Amanda. Yeah. Amanda keeps telling me all her dreams. <laughs> wow. uh, but yeah, it's very, I feel like it's very obviously metaphorical, but it's not specifically based on real events so much as what I feel real events could have been within the context of growing up in a small town where there are bears yeah no i got you straight away amanda what do you <laughs> are you going to think to add to that before you move on no i enjoyed it much. it was excellent a really good piece that i yes. think like you said he finishes off 10 minutes before you came on air <laughs> <laughs> it needs a bit of rereading i think first yeah well considering you recall a first draft i think i stood up really well then Tom. <laughs> so good stuff so right okay it's over to the other lady in the room now amanda what have you got for his piece okay. on poetry? Uh, this is unusual for me because I don't do a lot of rhyming poetry. So this might go really badly. You, you don't do any. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, it's from a prompt. It's not just, I didn't just decide to write it off the top of my head. It was based on a prompt and it had to rhyme. It's called You and Me. I want to be the cheese to your toast, but not the exorcist to your ghost. I want to be the pepper to your salt, but not the nut to your bowl. The tonic to your gin, but not the rubbish to your bin. I want to be the shoes to your socks or the keys to all your locks, but never like the needles to your pins or the frowns to your grins. I want to be the scarf to your hat, the this to your that, but never the pros to your cons or the goings to your guns. I'd rather be the burger to your fries or the sun to your blue skies, the hot to your dog or the kiss to your frog. The key to your latch, in other words, your perfect match. Oh. <laughs> I, I can't answer that kind of blah blush, right? That's all I'm going to say, right? That's lovely. <laughs> yeah, really sweet, Amanda, that. Because uh, honestly, quickly, you get used to Amanda sometimes when she's just peace like that. I'm expecting the male half of them to get killed in a horrible way. <laughs> <laughs> I Is that see. True? Is that true, Amanda? Yeah. You have habits. So you're not denying yeah. that one. I was coerced into writing it. I think the only way I could have written it based on what the prompt was is writing a love poem. There was no way to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> no murder in this one. <laughs> no. We're watching a funny program on quickly called Only Murders in the Building, if you've heard of that one, the side note. 
that's with Steve Martin, Martin Shaw and Selena Gomez. That's very like Amanda, because a lot of people are getting killed in that at the minute. So usually men as well. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right okay. Uh, my other piece, my second piece anyway, uh, from the same workshop. I had, um, I'm reading, I've got a book along quickly called A Poet's Guide to Britain. And it's a lovely book with all kinds of, some classics, some I've not heard of, piece and more about Great Britain, England, Scotland and Wales. And I pulled out some titles for the workshop we did recently. And this is the one I ended up writing a piece on. So this is Eulogy Written in a Country Churchyard. Closing the door, your eulogy began not with a farewell, then echo back to better days, back to the bus station when you arrived in town, when you turned 18, you told everybody, travelling for half the day, breath held in worry. And when you got married, there was no prayer said after our air crumbled outside when you both stepped confetti sweeping the air like a level playing field, ruined bowl of your insecurities. And after they buried you, before even your children had chance to properly grow up, you laid out all of your demons like far off goals on paper to the poppied fields and the coastline. Your words carried like risen songs, pierced the ocean roar. With a sad goodbye. So, okay, well, I think we need cheering up now, so we'll move straight on, okay? <laughs> Quickly, cheer us up again. If, if, if this next piece of yours is a cheerful, a cheerful one, it's probably not. <laughs> you can debate it. Uh, <laughs> this is what I've read for you guys before, so it's um, uh, Words Confessed by St. Peter in the Dirty Leather Booth of a pub last week. and as I left for the party my mother called out to me before the clock crows thrice you will deny thyself three times tonight I laughed at her as I closed the door behind me the party was alive surrounded by friends there was warmth in the air and love in every breath after midnight I found myself talking to a new guy and drunk I tried to make him out he seemed sweet and kind, tall among the party's murk. He told me stories and I noticed his face was wide open. I opened mine in return and we stood there in communion, two sets of eyes passing secrets between them. He handed me the unbroken thread of his body and I held it, floating with the excitement of such trust. But as I went to bring forth my own to tie the two together, I realised he had gone. I was standing alone and exposed himself across the room, his eyes flat and glassy, the shutters of his face pulled tight And as the clock struck one, I wondered what I had said or done to change him. I wondered if he had looked at me like that at all. But the night was young and the party in motion, so I moved with it. Feeling friend and stranger alike, I felt myself in flow. There was plenty of love in me to go around. My body fizzed and I moved about the room in a cloud of joy in myself and my fellow men when I found myself somehow stood next to him again. Determined not to be fooled twice, I was charming yet closed. I flowed forth only so much as I would with any other, but, surprised, I found he looked at me with pity. A priest he stood before me and told me of the neat order of his emotions. He did not leak like I did, he did not burst and bubble in a manner I would learn to control when I was older. Calm and certain, serene in his better comprehension of the world and the body, as the clock struck twice, I thanked him for his wisdom. I fell to my knees before him and he helped me down, but no flesh passed between us, only the knowledge of order and control, only the unlearning of myself. With the second chime still echoing, I returned to the party a monk. 
I passed between the revellers now, taking sins, dispensing wisdom. I did not flow into them as I had, but I heard their woes and they thanked me. Each face upturned to me in a pain I did my best to ease from my distinct and ordered tower. Unblemished by my gut, I gave advice I felt objective. And yet, while I moved about the throng, strange bubbles formed within me, rising up from below and searching desperately for a surface at which to break. I ignored them, as I had been trained, until, as the mass grew and grew, the dam broke and an unbridled torrent burst forth from my throat, battering my teeth. Ashamed, I tried to hide such disorder, but the congregation called out in joy. At last they cried and let forth their own outpouring, till the room was drenched and laughing. We danced together in the rain, a body of people connected in our restriction as in our relief. And I felt myself alive again and flowing amongst the party, but something was not right. A friend poured fondness in my ear. We are not the ones for whom your torrent hungers. Doubting and afraid, but feeling myself in motion, I nodded and turned to him who had so bridled me. But before I could open my mouth to flood him, I saw I was talking to a different man, a third person who didn't recognise me. His eyes held open to another's. He did not notice me. And as the clock struck three, my words withered inside of me. I had nothing to say, for how could I feel such a torrent for one so wholly unconnected? How could I hold such violent feeling for a man who did not, had not ever seen anything within me? We had been strangers all along. How could I have formed such strong beliefs? What strange pathology within me had so desperately wanted to see otherwise? The rest of the party simply passed. I did not know how I felt or who I saw, for I had become nothing. I looked upon the earth with deadened eyes and saw very little of those I loved. When I returned home, I cried out to my mother, Mother, what has become of me? There is something wrong here, but I cannot find its origin. She looked to me with smiling forgiveness. Ah, my love, you have denied thyself. You have effaced thy body. Now I said to her, confused, No, I don't think that's it. Oh, excellent, excellent. Mamda, do you want to answer that for saying anything first? Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's, I do know that piece quickly. Yeah, I've heard you do that before. It's probably one of my favourites, you all straight away. It's a great, great choice indeed. So. Thanks. Right. Amanda, on to your third and final piece, I believe. Right, okay. I was trying to get my phone to work. Right, for this to make any sense at all, I have to explain that the prompt, we had to um, take it in turns to name a character and create facts about him. So it turned out the character's called Keith. He's allergic to lemons. He's missing his pinky finger. He always wears loose shorts. He tells everyone he's a spy and he likes to sniff seats. And this is called Keith. I saw Keith in the women's changing room at the gym the other day. He tried to tell me it was part of his job as a spy. Apparently one of the women from the box fit class was wanted for boxing men to death all over the world. I think Keith's a liar though. I saw him standing there round the corner from the showers with his hands up his loose shorts. He reckoned it was his spy-issued gun that he was cleaning. But even if it was true, why did he crawl around sniffing all the benches? He said he would pick up the scent of his target. What a perv. And I doubt he lost his pinky finger working as a spy. More like he put it somewhere it shouldn't be. Later on, I was getting changed after spending an hour on the cross-trainer. And there he was again, hand inside his shorts. Well, I'd heard about his allergy. So I grabbed a bag of lemons and threw them at him one by one. 
I was actually aiming for his um, gun, but they all hit him on the head and killed him. I feel bad at killing someone, but it was on the Keith, so I guess I did the world a favour. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Now, what was fun about that one quickly was, oh, Amanda's only said mentioned half the exercise, and it was, I set the exercise that one. I asked, I asked someone in the group to do a uh, naming. I went around the circle and I got everyone's name and gave me a random fact about him. So basically, then we also had to write, to write something about this piece, either as a sort of way you loved him or hated him. What do you reckon Amanda's there? Was that a love or hate? <laughs> Guess it a hate? Yeah, I, I was glad I got the hate. <laughs> I thought if he asked me to write a love piece about it, I don't know what I'm going to come up with. <laughs> it doesn't seem very lovable. <laughs> no, it didn't. My, my, I, I, I had a love one on that, and I'm not going to read it because it wasn't very good, but it was a lot nicer than Amanda's was anyway, that's for sure. So, right, okay, I'll give you my finale piece now. This is a very short bit of flash fiction, this. Um, I told Quigley before, and this was wrote, actually, when we were sat near Bradford, Bradford Interchange, actually, last month, as Amanda, was it? One month yeah. before? Yeah, we went down, long story short, quickly, went down to go and see a mum and a younger sister and husband, and we went over for a bite to eat at a restaurant down there, we had a bit of time spare afterwards, and, and Amanda wanted to sit down, do some writing somewhere, so we sat down on the main road, with buses going past us, and I know Amanda wrote a piece about, was it about alien invasion or something, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And right. everyone was looking at the phones and didn't notice it. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine was this one, okay, so this is Dropping Off Books at Bradford Library. We were on the way to the library when you stopped and said to me, don't we have to go today? I'd rather go to the coffee shop. The books are due back, you tried reasoning. I'll drop them off tomorrow for you if you want, he responded. It's Sunday, he looked at her puzzled. Oh, it's okay. They have a drop-off point outside there. The police dropped the bill off for repairing the window to you at work on Monday. <laughs> Anyway, right. That took me a minute. Yeah, I know. It's one you've got to think about there. That's... It's one of those ones where it's not an obvious, but yeah. Anyway, it's Amanda's fault anyway. That always is. Right? It's always my fault. <laughs> okay, quickly. We're on, we're on the last piece now, am I ready now, myself? Yeah, this is another uh, old faithful. Um, this is a fungus on the face of God. There were roots growing out of the bottom of your feet. Long, thin, white hairs trailing deep underground. I've always felt them, but they're so fine they're hard to see. Shifting strands that slide through the earth unnoticed. They're like nerves to me. I flinch each time they meet each other, feel each impulse travel through them. I'm like a tooth. I feel other people's too grazing mine as we pass. Sometimes, I'm sure, we have become entangled and the nerves of theirs have been felt as the nerves of mine. The pain of this is almost unbearable. I don't know where they lead to, but I like to picture the convergence as a heaving mass of matted roots breathing somewhere in the core of the earth. Or perhaps they're more fungus, letting us leak out their spores for them as roaming, fruiting bodies. I used to find the thought comforting the earth holding us to her leashed as wanton children. It's harder to hate the others too when you feel their roots near you, when you know them to be but your brother fungus growing on the face of God. Lately, though, I am not so sure about the roots. They have been pulling at me. 
It's becoming harder to lift each foot, and each landed step seems deeper into the ground. The mud began to creep between each toe. Now it's at my ankles. I'm wading all the time. I'm afraid to be pulled down, for I cannot breathe the dirt. I made the decision a little while ago, and now I sit upon the ground with a small bone knife in hand. I have tried to cut the roots before, but they will not be severed. So I sit, breathing in and out, deliberating, waiting for resolve, but I know it will not come unless I trick myself, so without thinking I begin to cut the flesh from me. What shocks me is it doesn't hurt. My blood is so loud within me I cannot feel, and I watch my hands begin to cut the sole from my first foot, and the roots blacken and wither as I am in part released. Halfway untethered, my body swings upward. My hands hold the knife to my next foot. My gut twists as the knife enters and more roots begin to die. And with each ruined nerve, the earth needs me less, but I cannot stop. I will not be pulled down into her. The heel, the arch, the ball, each torn toe is shorn of flesh. The raw redness is open to the air, puckered with empty root holes. As the knife nears the last side fibre, I am hanging almost completely upwards from the earth. The root screams as it tries to hold me alone, but I end it, pushing the knife through and clear, and I grasp at the ground to hold myself still to the earth, but the grasp my fingers clutch is weak and rips apart under my weight. Then I am falling, falling into the gaping blue mouth that is the sky. Tremendous. Great, <laughs> great way of wrapping up today. That one. <laughs> I would expect little else of you, and that's all I'm going to say in that one. So. <laughs> now, obviously, it's part of the... Yeah, it's definitely one to tap your feet to that piece. What do you think, Amanda? <laughs> it's pretty graphic. <laughs> it is a little, uh, yeah, not not very nice. Well, you you two, you two should write a novel together. I, I, dread, I dread to think on what the gore factor of it like I haven't finished. That's all I'm going to say. But anyway, quickly, obviously, if people want to find out more about you, where do, where do you want them to go, lastly, to conclude with? Uh, I finally made an Instagram account for my writing. Um, I still don't have a huge amount. I don't have anything published, but I podcast and stuff out there um, and interviews. Uh, so if they follow me on Instagram, if I do get anything written down at any point, it will be on there. Yeah, and what's that page? And okay, people are wondering, is it Quigley QB? QB, is it? Quigley CB. CB, Yeah, QB. just my name. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Well, hang around then. So obviously we need, me and Amanda need to speak to you off mic anyway. But it's been a pleasure today. And it's, Thanks I, a I, lot. I knew the, the madness factor would increase to getting you and Amanda <laughs> on the same show. <laughs> so thank you again. As Don Callis over at Impact Wrestling says, stay safe and stay over. And see you later, guys. Mando doing a wave at the camera. Bye. <laughs> I'm not waving. <laughs> <laughs> but see you soon, guys. Take care.